0: The American History Podcast, bonus episode The Cold War in the 1960s. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen. Okay, welcome back to the show. Now, this is a special bonus episode. Um, As you guys know, the show is kind of on hiatus for um, about six weeks or so. Our next projected episode for World War II is early February of 2022. In the meantime, I'd like to give you some bonus episodes. So this one is from our Patreon-only series, 1983, the year the world almost ended. And... Um, you can get the rest of the episodes for this show over at Patreon for as little as, in this case, $5 a month. Um, so, without further ado, let's go ahead and start off where the show started off. In 1960, it was an election year. In the U.S., the Republicans nominated Vice President Richard M. Nixon. He was Eisenhower's vice president, and he was one of the most active veeps in American history. Now, he often traveled around the world, serving as Ike's troubleshooter, so to speak. He was also a strong anti-communist and a cold warrior. Now, Democrats nominated Senator John F. Kennedy. He was elected to the House of Representatives in 1946 and to the U.S. Senate in 1952. Now, upon announcing his presidential run, some questioned both his youth and his inexperience. However, he was charismatic and eloquent and quite able to win the nomination on the first ballot. Ignoring the advice of his brother, Robert, Jack chose Texas Senator Lyndon B. Johnson to be his vice presidential nominee. His acceptance speech is now referred to as his New Frontier speech. In it, Kennedy called upon the American people to make sacrifices to achieve their potential greatness and was reminiscent of just how eloquent he could be. Now, the campaign ended up being a dogfight, even though Nixon started out with a six-point advantage. Both Kennedy and Nixon presented themselves as strongly anti-communist. Now, at first, Kennedy's Catholicism was an issue, but when he told a group of Protestant ministers that he accepted separation of church and state and that Catholic leaders would not unduly influence him, that all changed. Now, the 1960 campaign was the first time when presidential tickets, or presidential debates, I should say, were shown on national television, And in the end, they determined the outcome. Actually, this is the first time candidates for president debated each other. Now, while there was a total of four debates that fall, the first one was the most important. On September 26, 1960, the two men met in Chicago at the studios of CBS's WBBM station. The debate was moderated by Howard Smith and included a panel of newsmen from CBS, NBC, and ABC and the audience went in giving the edge to Nixon. This was due to his experience and his knowledge on foreign policy. However, Nixon was ill and had lost some weight prior to the debate. He also refused to use makeup, and appeared, at least on television, to have a five o'clock shadow. Finally, his uh, choice of suit color, which blended in with the set background, thus helped to reduce his stature. Kennedy, on the other hand, chose to use makeup, and appeared vigorous and youthful. Viewers gave the edge to Kennedy, but those listening on the radio said Nixon won. In the aftermath of the debate, Kennedy, who'd been slightly behind in the polls, suddenly found himself slightly ahead. So in the end, Kennedy defeated Nixon by slightly over 100,000 popular votes and won the Electoral College 303 to 219. In the end, it was the closest popular vote in American history, at least until the election of 2000. The difference between Nixon and Kennedy was about one-tenth of one percent. Kennedy became the only Catholic ever elected president of the United States and the youngest man ever to win the office at the age of 43. The Democrat Party itself won both houses of Congress, although they did lose a few seats. Thus, in January 1961, John F. Kennedy took over the presidency after eight years of Republican Party rule under Eisenhower and his vice president, Richard M. Nixon. I don't want to go over his entire presidency, Uh, I'd just like to focus on the Cold War. In a move away from the Eisenhower policy of massive retaliation, the Kennedy administration developed something called flexible response. And whereas Eisenhower wanted to use the threat of massive retaliation um, as a way to prevent war, Kennedy thought it'd be best to instead use conventional military strategies to deal with the challenges the United States faced around the world. At the same time, Khrushchev pledged to back wars of liberation in third world countries. Thus, the two countries were set to wage the Cold War via proxy. Kennedy ordered a buildup of conventional armed forces to fight these localized conflicts. Again, as mentioned above, JFK K. switched away from Ike's reliance upon nuclear weapons. In his famous speech announcing the American effort to put men on the moon, Kennedy also announced that he would strengthen and expand American special forces and capabilities to wage less conventional warfare. Thus, Kennedy is often credited with creating both the Green Berets and the Navy SEALs. But in reality, this process had been ongoing for at least two decades. At the same time, JFK would continue to build up um, the nuclear arsenal with the intent of being able to carry out a second strike in the event the Russians attacked the United States with nuclear weapons. Now, one of the things I've not yet mentioned is the myth of the missile gap. This idea came about in the late 1950s and purported that the Americans had fallen behind the Russians in the numbers of nuclear missiles available to each nation. This was first promulgated in a national intelligence estimate from 1957 and then seized upon by Kennedy in the election campaign of 1960. But the reality was that the United States had more missiles and would continue to have more than the Soviet Union up until the 1970s. The Cold War had remained cold until the 1960s, or at least since the Korean War, when it suddenly turned warmer. First, we have the Bay of Pigs. In early 1960, the administration of President Eisenhower authorized the CIA to organize, train, and arm a brigade of 1,400 Cuban exiles for an invasion of Cuba to overthrow communist leader Fidel Castro. The idea was that this would trigger a popular uprising against the communist leader of that island nation. When JFK came into office, he continued to support the plan after the CIA assured him it would work. Needless to say, when the invasion took place in April 1961, it was a complete disaster, a horrible failure. Kennedy Kennedy decided against direct American intervention as he was afraid that doing so would spark an international crisis. In the end, 1,100 men were captured and 400 killed. In public, Kennedy took full responsibility on national television for the failure of the mission. In private, however, he blamed the CIA. The interesting thing about this is that a secret history of the mission was authored by that agency's inspector general and made public in 1998. In it, the CIA is found to have exaggerated the ability to develop the project. They are also found to have failed to realistically assess the risks that were involved. Furthermore, the report found the agency was guilty of a failure to collect and analyze intelligence about Cuban forces and of failing to produce contingency plans. Now, of course, when it comes to Kennedy, we need to talk about the Berlin Wall. Between 1949 and 1961, thousands of East Germans fled to West Berlin. Actually, millions fled to the West via Berlin, Just between 1945 and 1950, 15 million used the so-called Berlin loophole to escape the Soviet bloc. Now, part of the problem here was the way World War II had ended. Germany was divided between the Allied powers, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, the United States, and France. Although it was entirely in the Soviet zone of occupation, the capital city of Berlin was also divided between the Allied powers. All four powers were entitled to privileges throughout the city that were not extended to the rest of Germany, and this included the Soviet zone. Now, this immigration was an embarrassment to the Soviet regime in Moscow, and Khrushchev delivered an ultimatum on Berlin after seeing American weakness in the Bay of Pigs fiasco. The USSR would give Berlin um, to East Germany, stripping the West of access to the city. Kennedy responded by saying that the United States would not abandon West Berlin, Instead of cutting off access to the city, the East Germans instead decided to build a wall separating West Berlin from the rest of Berlin and East Germany overnight. The purpose was to stem the flow of people escaping from the East. Tensions flared, and Kennedy called up 1,500 reservists to reinforce the garrisons in West Germany. But in the end, the solving of the refugee problem actually helped to ease tensions between the two countries. Both air and land routes into West Berlin were kept open, and eventually the crisis passed. Now finally, it's time to discuss the 900-pound gorilla in the room, so to speak, Cuba, which we've kind of touched on a little bit, but not um, directly in the way that I mean to right now. So let's talk about Operation Mongoose. This was another plan created by the CIA and authorized under President Eisenhower. Essentially, it aimed at removing communists from power in Cuba. To put it bluntly, the idea was to assassinate Castro and topple the communist regime in Cuba. It was eventually ended, but needless to say, relations between the two countries were soured for the immediate future. Speaking of Cuba, I would be remiss if I failed to mention the Cuban Missile Crisis. In October 1962, the Soviets, under the direction of Khrushchev, began placing nuclear weapons in Cuba just 90 miles off the coast of Florida. The Soviets intended to use the weapons to force the United States into backing down on issues like Berlin and Cuba. The missiles meant that the only place on the American mainland that was out of range was the Pacific Northwest. Now, I want to make it clear Khrushchev had two goals, and both of them were important. The first was to protect the Cuban Revolution. As you can tell, it was in danger of being toppled. The U.S. was certainly interested in using all of its power to remove Castro. So this was in no way simply paranoia on either the part of the Russians or the Cubans. Secondly, and most importantly, Khrushchev saw this as a way to address the strategic imbalance in both theater forces and military manpower. Now, according to historian Melvin Leffler and his work for The Soul of Mankind, Khrushchev was interested in reducing Soviet spending on the military, so those funds could be then redirected into the economy. He was most interested in demonstrating the superiority of socialism compared to capitalism, and in order to make that happen, he realized he would have to start fixing the economy, for no matter what they might say to the contrary, the signs were there that not all was well in the communist paradise, known as the Soviet Union. Now sure, the Soviet Union, or at least its economy, could produce guns, but could it produce butter? That's the age-old economic question. Can or should a society focus on producing guns or butter? Remember, what you spend on guns cannot be spent on butter, and vice versa. In a speech to the Presidium, as well as in interviews, again and again, Khrushchev explained that his overriding priority was to produce more. And these are his words um, produce more potatoes, more of everything, but also to produce more housing, schools, medical care, and consumer goods. Hey, guys. Let me tell you about the sponsor for today's episode. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast opportunities such as the one I'm doing right now. They have host-read ads, interview segments, and more. The great thing about Podcorn is there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and pick opportunities right on the platform. You set your own rates, and you collaborate with brands directly. The best thing is that you never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn will support you every step of the way to ensure that you are protected and compensated for the work you do. Click the link on my show notes page to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today. Hey guys, are you enjoying this episode on history and economics? Are you looking to take your learning to the next level? Well, the next level of the American History Podcast can be found at Liberty Classroom. This site is awesome, and it's perfect for parents who have homeschool kids or even adults who are simply lifelong learners. Go to the com, click on the linked picture on the sidebar, and you'll be ready to join. You'll find courses on, of course, history, but also economics, Latin American history, literature, rhetoric, and more, all of which are taught by fantastic professors I know and trust, people like Tom Woods, graduate of both Harvard and Columbia, as well as others like Robert Murphy, Kevin Gutzman, Brian McClanahan, Jeffrey Herbner, and many other great scholars. Seriously, this is a fantastic site. If you're looking to finally learn the things they didn't teach in high school, but should have, unless I was your teacher, of course, this is the place for you. Again, be sure to enter the site via the link on our website and we'll get a small finder's fee. It's a win-win for you and the show. Now back to the program. Now, in order for his plan to work, the Soviets had to have their missiles up and operational before the Americans found out. Furthermore, they were dependent on the idea that at the end of the day, Kennedy would back down. Again, the Soviets were of the belief that the American leadership was weak, based on the Bay of Pigs. Well, they miscalculated. On October 14th, American aerial photographs revealed the Russians were secretly and quickly installing nuclear weapons in Cuba. The missiles were so close that American leadership would have only two minutes of warning, rather than 30 minutes. Now, one thing the Americans were not aware of was the fact that the Soviets also had nuclear-armed cruise missiles, which could be used to destroy the U.S. Navy. On October 22nd, JFK ordered what he called a naval quarantine of the island and demanded the immediate removal of the weapons. He also stated that any attack by Cuba or the United States or any other Latin American country would result in a full retaliatory strike against the Soviet Union. Kennedy had the full support of the Organization of American States as well, which helped add some legitimacy to his argument that the missiles needed to be removed from Cuba immediately. And when it came to down to how to deal with the situation, Kennedy rejected the idea of surgical bombing strikes against the missile sites, since no guarantee existed that all of the missiles would be hit. He also rejected the idea of invading Cuba, the option which was favored by a majority of his cabinet and the military. Unbeknownst to Kennedy, the Soviets actually had tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba, um, and these would have destroyed any invasion force, and Soviet field commanders had the authority to use them if needed. Thus, had the United States invaded, the likely result would have been all out nuclear war. In the end, Kennedy's announcement um, of Soviet nuclear weapons being present in Cuba shocked Americans, and all U.S. forces were put on full alert. For a week, the world watched as the Soviet ship carrying missiles steamed toward Cuba. Any attack by the United States would trigger a war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. On October 24th, 16 Soviet ships stopped before they reached the blockade line. Two days later, on October 26th, Khrushchev agreed to remove the missiles if the U.S. removed its missiles from Turkey and vowed not to attack Cuba. Now, this agreement publicly favored Kennedy as the Americans quietly pulled their Turkish missiles out six months later. However, it can be seen as a bit of a victory for the Soviet premier as well he saved Cuba, and he got the United States to remove its missiles from Turkey. Now I know that in most versions of this story, the U.S. and the USSR backed away from the brink, and the story ends there. But it was a bit more complicated than that, and here I'm relying again on Loeffler's work for The Soul of Mankind, a book that I highly recommend. While both leaders were sobered by the recent brush with nuclear war, it would be a bumpy road moving forward. The two leaders exchanged letters, And it's fascinating to see their thought process. First, Nikita Khrushchev was, as his son Sergei would later note, afraid of the idea of another world war. After all, he had been a first-hand witness to the destruction of the Second World War, having served on the front lines. That fight was, again according to Sergei, a defining experience in his father's adult life, so much so that he refused to even watch war films. Thus, in his letter to Kennedy, the Soviet leader explained that his people wanted to live in peace. He said the Russians had no interest in destroying American cities, but simply wanted to compete on a peaceful basis. Quote, we quarrel with you. We have differences on ideological questions. But our view of the world consists in this, that ideological questions, as well as economic problems, should be solved not by military means. They must be solved on the basis of peaceful competition, End quote. Now, one of the things Khrushchev harped on was the idea that the United States and the Soviets could not allow the outstanding problems to bring them to the edge of nuclear war again. In a letter dated October 30, 1962, the Soviet leader said the time was right to finalize a nuclear test ban treaty. He also mentioned a non-aggression treaty should be negotiated between NATO and the Warsaw Pact. He even suggested the abolishment of those two organizations. Now, another issue that he mentioned was Germany. I cannot emphasize just how important Germany was to Russia. Khrushchev was adamant that the so-called German question be settled. He called for an agreement that would recognize borders and sovereignty of both East and West Germany, as well as a plan for the withdrawal of American, British, and French troops from West Berlin. Furthermore, he asked that the United States recognize the People's Republic of China and allow it to take its rightful place in the United Nations. Finally, the Soviet leader noted that the people of Europe and Asia had seen war. Quote, war often rolled through our territory, end quote. On the other hand, while America had participated in the two world wars, it had emerged from them having suffered small losses while profiting greatly. Remember, the Soviet Union lost at least 20 million men and women in World War II alone. European Russia was devastated. In response, President Kennedy did not address the points brought up by the Soviet leader instead noting he felt he had been betrayed by Khrushchev. Quote, Your government repeatedly gave us assurance of what it was not doing. These assurances proved inaccurate. End quote. The president noted the Soviet actions were a dangerous attempt to change the status quo. So, Kennedy said, that before anything could be done going forward, the Soviets would have to show they were trustworthy by carrying out their pledge to dismantle and remove the missiles from Cuba. Both leaders were under intense pressure, Kennedy's political and military advisors were unhappy with the negotiated settlement. They warned him the Russians were likely preparing to diplomatically blackmail the administration. Kennedy himself warned Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara that the Russians might try to do this again. In the meantime, the Americans were slow to lift the blockade, insisting that the missiles and the bombers the Soviets based in Cuba, which were aging and incapable of offensive operations, be removed. On the other end, Khrushchev noted that he was under pressure, but he would remove the bombers, even though they were not part of the original agreement. However, the removal would take time. Castro was angry and in a state of total rebellion. The Americans were exacerbating that situation by continually violating Cuban airspace and continuing to encourage uh, sabotage on that island nation. In the end, the correspondence between the two leaders continued. A letter from Khrushchev to Kennedy dated December 19th again shows the real issue for the Russians was, unsurprisingly, Germany. He stresses this over and over again. He was worried about the growth of West German economic power and its attraction to the East Germans. The Soviets wanted the West to recognize the communist government in East Berlin, as they, the Russians, believed the survival of East Germany was key to their own security. Now, as early as July 1961, Khrushchev, meeting with Kennedy in Vienna, noted, quote, 16 years have passed since World War II. The USSR has lost 20 million people in the war, and many of its areas were devastated. Now Germany, the country which unleashed World War II, had again acquired military power, and has assumed a predominant position in NATO. Its generals hold high office in that organization. This constitutes a threat of World War III, which would be even more devastating than World War II, end quote. So here it is the Russians were fearful of a resurgent Germany. While they were in many ways still recovering from the war, Germany was back on its feet and an industrial power. As we mentioned in a previous episode, the Soviets and the Americans saw Germany in totally different ways. As far as the British and the Americans were concerned, a democratic Germany and an economically prosperous Germany was a good thing. To the Russians, a democratic Germany was neither here nor there. What they feared most was a prosperous Germany, capable of reconstituting its offensive military capability. And while the Americans and the British saw nothing wrong with Germans being a part of NATO, this only added to Russian fears. Okay, now originally for Patreon, this episode was almost an hour long, so we're going to just stop that here because it's just way too long to put onto the normal feed. If you enjoyed this episode, let me encourage you to check out our Patreon and, um, Thank you for any kind of support you do, whether it's purchasing from our sponsors or if you support us through Patreon or just by listening to the show. We thank you for all of that. So, once again, I'm your host, Sean. This is the American History Podcast, and we'll see you in the next episode. Sweetheart, instead of wandering, who would it off for our our wreck. Wreck. Oh. Oh. Uh, I like it. Oh. I swear your